Welcome to Theology Podcast. It's good to have you with us. And uh, it's a beautiful day uh, in uh, the Pacific Northwest. It's one of those rare days where there's this flaming ball of gas that can be seen in the sky. It's just amazing. Uh, you just it's mythical. Uh, not, some some folks don't believe in it anymore, but but it's there, and uh, you can see the mountains. You can see Mount St. Helens. You can see um, Silver Star, which is the one that uh, is easiest to see from my place. But anyway, enough of that. I'm C.R. Wiley. Uh, I live in the Pacific Northwest, and I've written some books. My latest book is in the house of Tom Bombadil. I've been a real estate investor, and I've even uh, been a professor of philosophy. Anyway, enough about me. How about you, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine, uh, Senior Fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, Ministry Associate at Reflections Ministries, Retired History Professor, and I'm in Indiana where the sun is shining beautifully, but we cannot see the mountains. <laughs> it's a bit bit of, bit of a, a long hike to get to the Rockies from where you are. Anyway, uh, great. So, Tom, introduce yourself and then tell us what we're talking about today because it's your day. Okay, I'm Tom Price. I teach theology, philosophy, and ethics. One of the places is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and it is, uh, it is right in the middle between overcast with a few breaks of sun, so it's not completely mythological here. <laughs> um, I don't see the mountains from where I'm sitting, <laughs> yeah, you, but it is hilly. Yeah, you have to go north to New Hampshire for you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But uh, so the topic, um, well, the I'm going to be drawing off of an article um, on Chesterton, um, but really the the theme, if I could sum it up, is really um, what is it, what's left of humanity once you throw God out of the picture? Yeah, that's sort of uh, that's sort of where maybe the best angle to take it. We've talked a lot in you know over the years about the Christian theological vision and how that sheds light on the nature of everything else, in particular the gift character of creation. But also, really, the the human being made in the image of God, and the huge significance that such teaching like that has for um, understanding the significance and import of what it means to be human, but also discerning something of the integrity of the humane. So now this um, this is based on you're kind of riffing on an article, uh, an essay uh, over at, uh, at the Imaginative Conservative, right? Yeah. Uh, and this is kind of yeah. uh, something on Chesterton. And those guys are good friends of ours. Uh, we've had some good yeah. connections with those guys over the years. If you haven't uh, checked out the Imagine Conservative, you really should. Yeah, and, and this article in particular is written by uh, Vigan uh, Gurion, I believe. I think that's how you say his name. Um, he's, I think, originally, it's an Armenian name. And I think he's Armenian Orthodox, uh, but he has he has written uh, a handful of fascinating works. Um, some of you may know the stuff he's done on um, the significance of imagination and uh, children's literature. Yeah, he wrote yeah. something on was wasn't that in yeah. Touchstone? I believe yeah. it. Yeah, it was in it was in Touchstone, and it came out on Oxford Press, which is interesting. You don't typically see that, but I think it, it was very favorable about the uh, resources that Oxford. Uh, put together of those fairy stories mm -hmm. and how accessible they were. Um, but it, but he, he really is, uh, has done a lot of work with imagination and uh, the humanities from a Christian viewpoint, if you will, and their, their spiritual significance as well as formative significance. Yeah, we also actually did an episode quite a while ago uh, based on another article by him dealing, if I remember right, with gardens. Oh, 
Oh yes. yeah, 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 yeah. This is all coming together yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think his thing is, uh, you know, Gar- he's a theologian, and uh, and I think he t- for years he taught at uh, Loyola in Maryland, but I think he's at at uh, UVA. If I re- if I re- if my notes are, are updated, um, but he, I think one of his lines is that he loves gardening, and gardening definitely um, brings one into the presence of God far more than his job as a theologian. <laughs> <laughs> so. And he's written a book on that as well. So um, I think these are this particular article is called G.K. Chesterton Rallying the Really Human Things. And that is a chapter of his book, I think, with the same title, Rallying the Really Human Things. And in that particular book, he looks at Chesterton. He looks at several, um, I think, principally Catholic writers. Maybe that was the audience he was directing this this at. Um Chesterton, Flannery O'Connor, and I'm trying to, the third one escapes me right now. Um, but he, he looks at them as sort of examples of what um, a Christian vision of the humane um, looks like, especially as it is addressing modernity in particular and the first, I, the first fruits of post-modernity. I mean, this is kind of where they when they were writing and what they were seeing. And they have a lot of insight because they were very attuned to the kind of alterations of the Christian vision that were taking place and how significantly that was rapidly eroding, I think, morality um, and higher purposes and was really moving in anti-civilizational directions, um, even if they just saw kind of first ramifications of that. Um, and so I think that this kind of work is meant to to grab hold of some of the insights of figures like Chesterton into what was really being lost when God gets thrown out of the picture, the Christian God in particular. Yeah, I think that when I think about that period of time, turn of the 19th uh, into the 20th century, it's almost as though that's uh, like a lost generation to us uh, because of the events, you know, that followed with the Depression and World War II. It's almost like those two things were almost like a mind swipe. We lost, uh, you know, the work of a number of people that were big at that time. Well, you actually have to go back to World War I. Um, World War One actually creates the term the lost generation. And um, the effect of industrialized warfare, which had never really been done before, warfare on an industrial scale, um, really shattered a lot of the optimism that existed toward science and other things in, in the Western um, in the Western world. World War II sealed the deal in many ways uh, because of the Holocaust. What you have in the Holocaust isn't your normal genocide. Uh, It is actually taking the full tools of industrialization and applying them to the slaughter of human beings. That had never been done before. And that's what really is a good part of the unique horror of the Holocaust. Uh, All of these things that, that ostensibly are there to enhance human life, being channeled simply to death. Right, yeah. That's right. And, and I think that the significance of, of those horrors 
um, are very telling in light of kind of these alterations that were taking place in the variety of countries and nations that were embracing a move, a rapid move away from classic uh, Christian insight and vision. Now, a lot of times Christianity gets blamed for these sorts of things. We, we can come back to that topic. For example, the kind of anti-Judaism that permeated German culture. Sometimes you'll even see it in you know, some of Luther's language, which they will see sets the kind of groundwork for a kind of, uh, you know, you know de- dehumanizing of, you know. Yeah, you would, you would never uh, expect to see anti-Semitism anywhere else in the world but Luther's Germany, would you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It just, just demonstrates right. the absurdity of the claim that Luther was to blame for it. Yeah. Well, well, that that's true. Well, the other part of that yeah. is that you have to be really careful here, and this is a mistake most people make. Um, Luther was anti-Judaic. He was not anti-Semitic, which is to say that he opposed the Jewish religion, but not the Jewish people. He was quite happy when Jews converted. Hitler defrocked Lutheran pastors who had Jewish backgrounds, because for Hitler, Jewishness was a race. For Luther, it was a religion. There's a significant difference between the two. And that's one of the things that gets, gets, um, gets lost in most of these discussions. That's right. That's not to excuse Luther's language, but, but still we have to be clear what, what, what the problem really is. That's right. And, and I also think, you know, this kind of, this is why when we talk about you know, the significance of a, a Christian vision, a lot of times they'll say, well, what can you point to apart from enlightenment attempts to get over those kinds of, you know, uh, that kind of so-called bigotry um, was an advance um, rather than kind of going back to Christian particularity. I mean, that, that's a later, that's a, that's a debate we often hear made um, when we try to talk about retrieving riches of the Christian vision. So, so, um, but, you know, th- those things are very easily answerable once you start to unpack what they're actually claiming and what's actually going on. And, and you know, right at the heart of Christianity is not the notion that Christians enact Christianity perfectly or beautifully. <laughs> it's talking about the groundwork being laid to an alter- alternative vision that the more you embody it faithfully, the more it actually does uproot those very kind of things, not merely as a Band-Aid solution, but towards their being fixed. And so, um, so, but anyway, that's not where I wanted to take this. And um, one of the things I want to note is kind of what he's up to in this article, where he is noticing, um, he's talking about really Chesterton noticing that there are some valuable things in the kind of humanism that's floating around in his day, a secular variant of humanism. Um, but those valuable things seem to lose their deeper significance because they're untethered from something much richer that can actually ground them and orient them if enacted with fidelity. And so one of the things he looks at is kind of distinguishing what a Christian view of the humane is. And some Christians, especially in the Protestant and reform world here, something like Christian humanism, they're, you know, they're, you know, the peacock feathers come up and uh, they, they get, you know, enraged. Um, and there are variations of that for which we would get enraged, um, I think, whenever you kind of slip in a Pelagian vision. But that isn't what what uh, Chesterton has in mind here. Um, he's talking sort sort of the kind of the view of 
Christianity, when it started to take root and, and move out merely of Judea and ta- started to t- take on its own fuller vision, um, he's talking about kind of Orthodox Christianity having the most uh, promising, becoming the most promising source for a common vision of the truly humane. I mean, I'm actually looking at the article here, and he, he uh, Vegan gives a nice summary, uh, and he yes. ties it to the Incarnation. I don't know if you remember that. Yes. It says here, Christian yes. humanism is grounded in the doctrine of the Incarnation and gains its special character from that doctrine. God and Christ affirms yep. our enfleshed and historical existence and gives meaning to it in spite of death. Now, I don't know how yep. anyone could object to that. Um, yeah. Well, and this is where, I mean, he, he, he gives a list of certain figures like a Chrysostom, um, Basil of uh, Caesarea, uh, Augustine, Gregory the Great, and then he will list some later Renaissance figures who we may or may not fully agree with. But his point is, is the incarnational emphasis that true humanism, he says, argues is theocentric and not anthropocentric. Um, to quote, Christian humanism honors the fact that though created of dust, the human being is the sole creature that God has made in his very image and likeness. Christian humanism answers humankind's need to be redeemed from a fallen condition in which this image has been tarnished and in which death works like a rust that destroys a bronze statue. Because it knows the difference between God and humanity and the effects of sin, Christian humanism rejects the spurious notions of human progress and perfection espoused by the secular. And that's when he moves into this talk of it's grounded in the incarnation, where eternity and time where faith and reason and, and uh, revelation and, and reason, um, where spirit and matter, these things that get pulled apart in these various secular versions, are held together in what he tends to call a mysterious paradox, which is not contradiction, but is a lot of what we've talked about when we've talked about the, the non-conflictual relationship between God and creation, that these things in the incarnation um, come near without dissolving the mystery and yet allow for an integ- integration of, of the humane and the creaturely in relation to God in such a way that these things are not brought into the oppositions they had under our fallen condition, much less in the secular variations that that fallen condition is reiterated. So there is a unifying factor of those various elements of creation and humanity that the incarnation brings together as we live out our life in communion with God in Christ. Yeah, what I'm thinking about when I think about this contrast then is so the humanism that um, is a problem is the humanism that has rejected the incarnation. In other words, the yeah. uh, the prospect and and the, the the hope that we could have union with God through Christ and the Christian yeah. humanism is the emphasis on God's uh, enfleshment and, and, and redemption yes. uh, of the, of human beings in Christ. Yes. And, and so the, the, the early Christians knew very well that the incarnation was the incarnation of the eternal logos. And at the heart of that is the, the kind of the, um, 
the ratio of all things, right? The light that lights all things, that illumines all things. So all that is gets its fundamental ratio in the Logos. And so this Christ's enfleshment and his saving work in redemption does not only reconcile us with God, but actually to creation <laughs> and to everything that is humane. And so these things, the early church um, were able to bring into their renewal. I mean, look at, you know, Ephesians uh, 1.10, where Christ brings all things into, into, you know, union with his person and work. And so this is an affirmation of that. So true Christian humanism is, in, is taking the import of the incarnation and it's reconciling all things to Christ as something that we should begin to take serious as Christians as we enact our communion with God and each other. Where, where I thought was interesting, where he went in the article, was what happens when you lose the connection to the incarnation or you lose the theocentric uh, version. He, yeah. made, he made the point that you know, people argue that Christianity is way too anthropocentric. Um, yeah. and as a matter of fact, I just saw that in uh, a quote from Lynn White Jr. Um, <laughs> but his point is that no secular humanism is truly anthropocentric, even the name points to it, whereas Christian humanism, because it is oriented first around God, actually escapes that. Um, yeah. But but what I what I really thought was interesting is the implications that he traced out using Chesterton of what happens when you lose that. Um, yeah. You you have you have a whole bunch of things that are what I've heard described as residual Christianity. I think Chesterton's phrase is borrowed capital from Christianity that exists yeah. in sort of a fleet free floating system within within humanism, but. It, Frankly, they have their feet firmly planted in midair, uh, to, yeah. to borrow a phrase. Um, and this <laughs> leads to all kinds, even even the best parts of this lead to all kinds of chaos as you move forward. Uh, he's got this marvelous yeah. quote from Chesterton where he says that the, you know, the problem with this isn't that it's going to cause the acceleration of vices. It'll do that. But, but yeah. the worst part of it is you get these sort of wild virtues these, these virtues yeah. that exist untethered from anything and untethered from each other that can actually cause more damage than the vices do. And I think that's a really insightful comment because I think it describes a lot of our world today. Yeah. Virtue gone mad. Is that his line? Is something like that? Virtue, virtue, virtue gone mad or gone mad. like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's worth staying on that for a little while because – I think that is one of the, I think that's one of the rich aspects of, of Chesterton's analysis here, and also what what um, Gorian is up to, is this notion that you know a lot of people think that. Let me put it a different way. We've talked a lot about in previous shows the way in which Christianity uh, impacted our culture, our world in so many ways, and even when the doctrine of God shifted. And everything else along with it shifted. It did. It carried some of those Christian riches, but in a kind of a, a, a distorted theological vision came with it. That opened the door to radical distortions, what which uh, uh, John Rist will call uh, deformed Augustinianism. You know, um, that's his way of putting it. The way the will gets gets conceived. 
Um, but similar here, I think, with virtue is Christianity comes and, asks, you know, if, if anything, um, humbles and yet elevates th- those aspects of virtue formation under, under the Christian content. Um, and, and it brings riches, but once those riches are brought forth and start to shape a people, you rip that incarnational grounding out of it and you leave it sitting there. Something, something or nothing is going to be filling that, that, uh, that content. And this is, I think what he's up to. Yeah. I've got the quote from Chesterton here. Let me read this. The modern world is not wholly evil. Indeed, in some ways, the modern world is far too good. It is full of wild and wasted virtues. When a religious scheme <laughs> is shattered, it is not merely vices that are set loose, but the virtues are let loose also. And the virtues wander more wildly than the vices, and the virtues do more terrible damage. The modern world wow. is full of the old Christian virtues gone mad. The virtues have gone mad because they've been isolated from each other and are wandering alone. Yeah, it's that it's that uh, it's kind of uh, self-regulating character to the virtues when they're all present. Uh, it's not as though any one of them can be understood uh, sort of on on its own. Everything has to kind of yeah. relate to everything else, and you have to have I I think, uh, and this is where the incarnation comes in, a high view of cre- of creation. Uh, as a yeah. as a given thing that you are not just simply trying to master, but you're trying to yeah. understand and uh, even conform to because you believe that there's a kind of wisdom embedded in it. Um, whereas today people just think of the world as just a meaningless sort of thing that just grinds along and is, a, if, if anything, just a mechanism. Yeah. And it, 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 it also tends, you know, connected, I think, the way in which these virtues take on a life of their own, um, apart from this kind of, tran- you know, the proper transcendent vision that positions them the right way. It may be a good way of putting it, because when that is taken out, they can almost become the replacement of the transcendent vision. So let's just say virtue signaling like we see today just affirming with our utmost allegiance, you know, whatever we get from it, this, this sort of virtue vision, um, as if it is the, the ultimate good. And so we're committed to it at all costs. We'll sacrifice everything for it. Um, sometimes ourselves, but definitely our neighbor if they violate it. Right. Um, and so these things, take on, I think, and this is maybe Chesterton's point as well, this madness, they take on this destructive capacity, um, which, you know, merely having people caught up in vice does not nearly touch the damage done. You know, we could go to C.S. Lewis here with The Great Divorce, where he makes the point that, you know, there's this mother that is obsessively doting on her son and Ultimately, she won't go to heaven and she insists that they send her son to hell with her because the mother's love is the thing that is so utterly important. And he has <laughs> McDonald's comment that the greatest virtues turn to the greatest vices when they go wrong. It's yeah. exactly the same yeah. kind of concept. Yeah, the one, one of the yeah. things that's marvelous about uh, the great divorce is how Lewis uh, kind of cr- helps us to see that vices are not all equally bad and that 
uh, virtues gone to to vice or transformed into vices are far worse. So, you know, yeah. for example, sensuality. Uh, for many young men, there's nothing in, that they can think of that's more awful than sexual sin, particularly because they find themselves so given to it. Um, but uh, in the great scheme of things, yes, it's a bad thing. And there are lots of things that come out of that kind of a sinfulness that are really horrible. But uh, compared to um, some of the other things that Lewis addresses, you see it kind of in proper perspective. Uh, like a mother's love can really become a, a monstrous thing. Um, you know, yeah. anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think uh, Thomas Traherne, the, the one who wrote The Shining Human Creature, that you know, I think the, the guys out at Davenant Institute had just put out the little book uh, written by, I think, what, he's a 16th century uh, figure. But he has this similar notion where he talks about what happens when a, he, he uses it in terms of a good pursued. And he talks about certain goods pursued, but what happens if those goods uh, become replacements for the higher good? You know, the way in which, you know, the way in which an, an idol takes shape. And so we, we look for a lesser good and try to exact from it a higher good or we serve that rather than the higher good. You know, he's talking about sort of idolatry. There. And I think this ha very much happens on, the, on that same level with, with the virtue um, emphasis that that a virtue ripped from the highest good, <laughs> which gives it its its proportion um, takes on an idolatrous and and almost, uh, it, I mean, it, another way of putting it is just look at what happens with a certain kind of legalism um, ripped from the full grace context of the law. I mean, it becomes so damaging that there's nothing salvific or redemptive about it. Um, and Jesus will talk far more about that kind of distorted law, that distorted good, um, the, and it's damage, you know, it's damnable damage um, if it becomes a replacement for for the higher good, which ultimately is the incarnation. Um, and so, yeah, you you have this warning going on over and over again. And I can't help but think of most of the challenges we face today are, in, you know, I think Glenn has mentioned this a lot of times and Chris, you have as well. A lot of the, you know, the virtue signaling, the, the ideologies that are driving this generation and upsetting every, every institution um, are, are, are really these kind of things gone mad. Um, it doesn't make sense apart from a Christian vision or maybe some kind of uh, classic vision, you know, Platonic or, or, or Aristotelian vision, which they would reject as well. Um, to hold on to some of these virtues as goods to basically go swinging and knocking every institution down as if they don't conform to them. Yeah, this this, kind of, this brings to mind that you know um, Nietzsche's uh, you know his his criticism of Christianity is that it's Platonism for the people, <laughs> which yeah, is yeah, something yeah. that maybe some of our listeners are unfamiliar with have him having said and might want to <laughs> reconsider Plato in light of that. But <laughs> I, I think uh, one of the things, too, that comes out in this article is, is at the very end, there's another marvelous quotation from Chesterton. And this might uh, this might be something people can uh, will will sound familiar because it's just so so prescient. I mean, he's he's saying this 
what, what like in the maybe the teens, uh, the twentieth century, early twentieth yeah. century. So he's talking about our our, our inability to kind of like uh, know anything anymore. And yeah. he says, uh, "We who are Christians never knew the great philosophic common sense which inheres in that mystery until the anti-Christian writers pointed it out to us. The great march of <laughs> mental destruction will go on. Everything will be denied." Everything will become a creed. It is uh, a reasonable position to deny the stone, uh, the stones in the street. It will be a religious dogma to assert them. It is a rational thesis that we are all in a dream. It will be a mystical sanity to say that we are all awake. Fires will be kindled to testify that two and two make four. Swords will be drawn to prove that leaves are green in the summer. We will be left defending not only the incredible virtues and sanities of human life, but something more incredible still, this huge, impossible universe which stares us in the face. <laughs> That's great. We, we're, we are there. Yeah, he saw it. He saw it coming 100 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and he's tying that in that particular section um, to the significance of, of sound dogma. Um, the fact that you inescapable, um, you know, the the human, the humane and that which is going to give meaning, significance, purpose to, you know, to, and to avoid kind of what he'll call the new barbarism um, it, and it is the Christian theological vision grounded in the dogmas, the central dogmas uh, that are transcendent and have the capacity to ground it and that there is no way. Once you start to um, move towards a deeper immanentism, um, to to hold on to that, and you know he and he compares that to a figure. Uh, a uh, Gorian does it to a figure. What was his name? Clutch. Or yeah, yeah, I saw that. Clutch. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of the of the bumper sticker sometimes you see on New Agey people's cars. You know, my karma drove drove over my ran over my dogma. You know, and. <laughs> and uh, well, that's a dogma. You just uh, have. Uh, that's <laughs> in right. other words, it's an you yeah. know authoritative teaching is another way to yeah. understand what a dogma is, and there's no getting away from it. Yeah, actually, Chris, I'd like to read the next couple of sentences right after you stopped, uh, partly because yeah. it's a brilliant Chestertonian turn of phrase, but also there's another point that he's making here that I think is particularly relevant when we consider things like what is a woman. Yeah. We shall fight for visible prodigies as if they were invisible. We shall look on the impossible grass and skies with a strange courage. We shall be those who have seen and yet have believed. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, we are in a state where the, the culture is denying things that are empirically verifiable, visible in front of us. And yeah. We are people who have seen and still believed anyway, despite what the culture is telling us. I, th I thought that uh, I thought that that uh, turn of phrase around uh, the Jesus's words to Thomas was kind of brilliant. Oh yeah, yeah, that's great stuff. Yeah, it's always fun to read Chesterton. Um, I think some. I think he's much richer than maybe his some of his uh, detractors uh, will you know can, can concede because they just aren't as well read as he is. So when you yeah. when you read Chesterton and you have a thorough acquaintance uh, with the Western tradition, you can't help but be impressed with just how much range this guy has. Now he frustrates people because he'll uh, you know string together thirty uh, 
you know, paradoxes in a row and you're just kind of like <laughs> exasperated at the end of it. But, but, you know, like w- with his, uh, his biography of Thomas Aquinas, uh, there are Thomists who say that was the best treatment of Aquinas I've ever read. <laughs> and they're just kind of yeah. ticked because he's not, you know, one of the guys in their club. <laughs> Yeah, and and he does he does it very kind of flippantly it, it, from what you know what I've heard and yeah and and I think uh, you know and there was there was a subtlety to speak about his his capacity in what Glenn had just mentioned where he he's showing something that we don't think about often is we often think because we we've been shaped by the Enlightenment um, that there would be a clarity to reality that everyone should just naturally have. And actually, I think what, what he's on to is that any clarity that the Enlightenment continued on is indebted to, again, this kind of vision. Um, again, you could have, the way he puts it in the article is, is of course, the biblical vision, but also kind of the classical vision as, as these kind of merge. Well, I think, I think part of the, and we, we'd got into this in another show, is he's a bohemian. Yeah. You know, he's, he's, yeah. he's an, he's a visual artist. He h- hangs out, uh, with poets and, uh, you know, people, uh, in the artsy part of town. Uh, he just happens yeah. to weigh over 300 pounds, but he's kind of yeah. Byron who come to Christ, you could say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he, and, but, but the, the brilliant point going on here is what he ca- captures in his other, uh, you know, great book on ortho, you know, orthodoxy, the romance of orthodoxy. When he talks, if I remember correctly, he talks about the 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 mad person is basically the hyper rationalist, right? The one who has an explanation for everything. And I I, th- I think it's his his line that you know that the, the mad person is is so rational that um, he could come up. And you could basically show him and convince him rationally that, you know, something else was true. And yet he could still fully reason and have an impeccable line of reasoning to why it wasn't. So he could reason his way um, into all these absurdities, yet they're mad. They aren't. Paraphrase it, if I, you know, to put it the way I think it goes, is that a madman isn't a person who's lost his reason. A madman is a person that only has his reason. Has it. (laughs) And so the, 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 the emphasis on the romance, of course, I think is the imaginative of, you know, that's kind of, and especially the, the morally imaginative we've talked about, we talked about that last time. And for him, it's the paradoxes of the incarnation that allows for this imaginative dimension. And he believes that is what gets lost, especially in relationship to the ethical, when the secular variations of humanism start to, to take over. And I think he has a, 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 if I can find the quote there, um, he said, uh, Chesterton is perhaps the most articulate 20th century practitioner of the Christian paradoxical imagination. He judges a serious breakdown of the fundamental moral suppositions deposited by biblical faith and the classical tradition. And he saw this as sort of accelerating. And so the one accelerant, if you will, was the increasing abandonment of the reality and its implications of the incarnation in, in the West. And, and so, and he, and he's sort of not, he's not the first to mention that. I know, uh, was it Michael Buckley some years ago wrote a very 
you know, erudite book um, called At the Origins of Modern Atheism. Um, it, it's the kind of stuff historians like. It's not the kind of <laughs> it's not the kind of history of ideas I like reading because it is so caught into the minutia of historical, you know, thinking. Um, but I think one of the, one of his moves is such where he talks about the way in which the the imagination towards this kind of crass atheism that has come about in the West was directly related to an abandonment of incarnational and Trinitarian thinking in the doctrine of God in the West. Um, and it, and so it's, it, you know, it's, it kind of parallels some of this. Yeah. Yeah. We see similar, again, I, I want to go back to Lewis. We see similar kinds of, of things, uh, even in uh, works like The Abolition of Man or uh, uh, the novelization of it in That Hideous Strength, um, that what happens when you detach reason from the logos what what happens when you when you do that is you have no firm ground on which to reason and so you reason your way around to and it's like chris said you reason your way around to anything that uh, that you want to and all that ends up really being left is will to power you know this is a the thing this this is the point at which i become somewhat discouraged i i'm a I'm a, uh, an optimistic eschatology, but when it comes to mm. what is it going to take to come out of this funk that we're in, uh, in the world right now, I mean, we've had great minds warn us yeah. what was coming mm-hmm. and it's made zero difference. Now it's made a difference in the sense that people like us, uh, can, you know, uh, see what they had to say and, 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 and confirm it <laughs> and say, well, yep, there it is. Yeah, but yeah. it didn't actually prevent it from coming, you know, coming about. And it seems to me that when you argue with God, uh, when God <laughs> argues back, is there's something called history that happens. <laughs> no, no, Chris, my Facebook page, I regularly get this cartoon showing up. Somebody posts it to my page. It's two old guys sitting in a library and it says, those who study, those who fail to study history are doomed to repeat it. Those who do study history are doomed to sit by helplessly while others repeat it. <laughs> you, know, and, you know, and now we're not yeah. talking about history repeating itself exactly, but it's the same process, really. Yeah. Well, I, I think that one of the things that really seared itself onto the, the Western mind in the fall of Rome was the, 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 the vices, the sort of uh, collection of vices that people were recoiling from and, and rejecting. One of those was, you know, the sensuality of the, of the empire. Yeah. And one of the reasons why, you know, there was such a stress on Christian chastity and probity uh, in marriage and all of that uh, obviously, there's a theological dimension, but I also think there was a kind of an historical reaction. That was so bad. We don't want to ever go back. I wonder if God is giving, and I, I, I suspect that God is giving us over to the lusts of our hearts and saying, okay, I'm going to let you uh, sit in this cesspool for a couple of centuries uh, and you learn your <laughs> lesson again. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, you know, <laughs> that, that being the case, I mean, it, it definitely makes navigating this um, 
far far more complicated. But I, I think I think one of the things that we we do re- remember of God's people during these kinds of times, um, as they've repeated themselves in different ways, is that there has been some light to guide the people of truth, and and that those that light. Um, becomes kind of foundation stone for the digging out when the time comes. And and I look at, for example, what light was brought into the world when the light came into the world, light of true light. And, you know, Christ in the incarnation, radically, I mean, the, the world was radically altered. And to rip Christ and his consequence out of the world, um, you couldn't even, you wouldn't even begin to imagine what that would look like. Um, and so w- seeing that, we can't throw out the rich insight that our forebears brought to us. I think it's significant, especially for our younger generation who, who they've got to, they're, they're going to wrestle through it very different, you know, longer than we have to, you know. Um, and I think really their return to those riches. I mean, we've done it some with, you know, from the point of view of the church's insight into the incarnation of Christ, the, the Christian difference that we've been talking about, the Christian view of God and God's relation to all things, the gift character of everything, including the created order and its telos, and its running away from God and its return in Christ. The incarnation for the early church was the key just like it was the is the key to scripture it's the key to holding together those things that these alternate visions like to rip apart so they have a set they have the right unifying um aspect in that in that uh, doctrine and in that dogma and it will really take some rigorous students that study that stuff to draw out those ramifications for our time of reintegrating once the radical, you know, the radical breaking keeps breaking and breaking and breaking to the point where there is going to be some kind of need for a unifying factor and Christians actually have one that is rich and humane. (laughs) Yeah, last week, one of the things that came up uh, as we were discussing Malcolm Geith's idea about uh, imagination um, as the integration of the heart and the head, as it were, is that that integration point is found in Christ. It's, again, the incarnation. Sooner or later, whenever you sink into anything deeply enough in in Christianity, it comes back to Christ. It comes back to the incarnation. Yeah, yeah. And what I don't want people to think is, is a functionalization of the doctrine. And I think that he even emphasizes in this article is that the emphasis on the incarnation is not merely that it has the resources to give us a unifying vision. His point is it's true. And the truth of the dogma is such it's that it does integrate these things because it is true and all things are from this true truth and for this yeah, there, truth. It, there's a portion of the, of the article where he gets into consequentialism and that's a cl- that's a close yes. cousin to sort of pragmatism and instrumentalism. Yeah, a whole approach to the yeah, a whole approach to the world that uh, is just thinking about you know I guess outcomes and what we can do to bring out certain things that we want, as opposed to reality as such. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that was even similar. We've had we had Michael Hanby on. He said a very similar thing in his lecture at Touchstone, and that was 
the the aim is not pragmatic here. Maybe there will be no consequence to us uttering it right now, but the goal, the, the aim is the truth of it. Um, that is the point. That is the good, which, uh, speaking of which, this kind of leads to that one topic uh, he gets into here in how easy it is for us in the modern age to want to dodge the whole notion of the good and the common good. And uh, one of the things, he has this little paragraph, I think this is very brilliant. And this is similar to the way, uh, Glenn, the, the talk of wanting to dodge how to define a man and a woman is now. He writes, every one of the popular modern phrases and ideals is a dodge in order to shirk the problem of what is good. We are fond of talking about liberty, that as we talk of it is a dodge to avoid discussing what is good. We are fond of talking about progress, that is, a dodge to avoid discussing what is good. We are fond of talking about education, that is a dodge to avoid discussing the good. The modern man says, let us leave all these arbitrary standards and embrace liberty. This is logically rendered, let us not decide what is good, but let, us be, let it be considered good not to decide. And so he keeps going on with this. And I think this is, is similar to what we do with issues of trying to come to some grips of, of the essence of what it means, you know, what nature, the nature of human being, male and female, and, and how people will get uncomfortable when that language is used, right? There's your, there's your dodging. Uh, this is uncomfortable. Oh, really? To discuss the nature, the fundamental nature of something? Why? Because there may be ways of defining it that are untethered from reality, or even the talk of reality is uncomfortable. Um, and, and, uh, and I, you know, his ability to see that early, and I think sometimes we don't push back enough on that. Um, definitions are imported into any claim, any sets of claim, and even if it is just being used rhetorically um, to, to kind of gain power out of the narrative, these things are, 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 are imported with meaning. And the, the ability to clarify that meaning and the obfuscating of it or dodging of it is a, cl is, is a clear case of something that's very fragile. Yeah, I think uh, we talked some time back about the nature of the church growth movement and its tendency to sort of rely on the market uh, to mm -hmm. uh, sort of know for itself uh, what is sort of like, uh, um, well, we're taking it, taking its sort of fun, certain fundamental uh, assumptions that are seen to be prevalent in the market to heart in such a way that we uh, more or less uh, endorse them in the name of Christ, yeah. uh, when in fact yeah. what we should be doing is challenging them at a fundamental level because the market, yeah. uh, for all of the good things that we enjoy because of it, um, is a bad guide when it comes to determining what's good. So, you know, for example, yeah. if you talk about what's good for the economy and somebody says, well, a casino would be good for the economy, and you're like, are you nuts? <laughs> you know, it, it, uh, yeah. if, because you have reduced uh, the good to just simply dollars and cents flowing, um, you yeah. have lost touch with just reality as such. Um, 
in fact, you're cashing in reality when you set up a casino. It's 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 a yeah. It's a it's a thing that eats away at like a cancer at at a healthy community. Yeah. Well, it, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just gonna going back to to the quote you read. There's another thing Chesterton said at one point, something to the effect of, you know, people say we shouldn't fight over words. Words are the only thing worth fighting about. And you know that that's the that's that issue of definition. How you know? Yeah. It, and the more the culture goes in this direction, the more wisdom in the direction it's been going, the more wisdom Chesterton's comment is revealed to have. Yes. And you, and you, I think that you're, you're hitting on the other aspect. I think he's emphasizing uh, is that the true, which words are connected to the good, right? Which, which word proper use of words <laughs> is, is directed to the transcendentals are going on in the background and he, in, in a, and, uh, Gorian put, has a nice quote here. He says, Christian humanism builds on the human person's inner directness toward the transcendent. This is something, again, we, you know, it's those in the reform camp will talk about kind of the, the break in that, but we're also recognized that, that that's there. The point is, the reason we search for an alternative religion in God is because it's there. The problem is it needs to be, you know, it, you know brought back, back under, under Christ. Um, but it um, basically Christian humanism nurtures and disciplines this yearning, eros, right, which Lewis will talk about, for the divine life, for truth, goodness, and beauty that God has planted in the creation. And so when that transcendent vision of creation in its, its original openness to God and its fall, the fact that it owes everything to God is directed to God, but because of sin has been, it, it, that, is, that is completely oriented the wrong way. Um, and then the inbreaking of Christ and the incarnation to actually start renewing and restoring that and other things in relationship to him to that transcendent vision, then we don't have to kind of fragment things out like words or anything else from what is good and what is true and everything else, because these things are all related to that which is ultimately real and good. And so another way of putting it is this. If people want to avoid or dodge defining things because they don't think they have to, they are dodging and avoiding the question of the true and the good. And I think one of the insights here is to press and force and not retaliate from making people show how what they say and how they act can accord with what is true and good and beautiful. Because otherwise, there isn't left much left to the humane if, if, if you don't have that. Then it is just really, if, if it is just will to power after that, then, you know, well, I guess that's where well, we are. Well, it is where we are. <laughs> the, sort of the irony yeah. of this, uh, the bitter irony, is that the, the secular humanists have lost touch with the human to such an extent yeah. that they want to reinvent it and transcend it. Yeah. So it's not actually even yeah. a celebration of the human anymore. It's a, it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a taking the matters into our own hands and creating from, from nothing, something, uh, that, uh, we can, uh, enjoy being or, and, and what does that mean? Well, it means power. Like you said, you know, trans, trans, yeah. the, tra the transhumanist project is a, it's a power game. It's a, it's a, it's an effort to, uh, exercise, uh, full control over the, over the physical world. But even the, 
inner recesses of that world, our minds and so forth. Yeah, that I'm going to come back to that that point um, right there because I think that uh, one of uh, a big old lefty philosopher just brought something up about that that is is very uh, very insightful. It was actually an article I was going to do today, but I'm I'm going to come right back to that. But before I do it, I wanted to uh, just just note that I think one of the see if I can say this the right way. Trace my thought. Actually, I'm going to backtrack. I'm going to go to Zizek first. <laughs> Zizek, uh, I don't know if you know his work. So he was a he's a big. Uh, I'm trying to think of where he is. Is he is he a Serbian? I can't. Re- I cannot remember where where he's from. Uh, Z E Z E This is the guy that has uh, had his run-ins with Peterson, right? Uh, he yeah. could have. He he's a he he debated John Milbank a lot. I think they're they're friends, but they they did you know they did that book Monstrosity of Christ. He, you could call him in one way or at one phase he would call himself something like basically an atheist Marxist Christian or some weird combo. But anyway, one of the things that he he just did an article on that's really very insightful is the way in which the transhumanist project has now become something that has fundamentally altered that that humanism and that is that it's actually ready to embrace becoming slaves to the technology this is where Eliel was going with it so it is a, it is a affirmation of humanity as basically saying okay we have created something better than us that we should basically become become servants to and so there is transhumanism if you will Going to this stage of basically becoming becoming a slave to w- what we've what we've made and produced. Yeah, this is something that Elon's gotten into recently in his crit- criticisms of the of of, the, of AI. Um, and, yeah. and AI and, and the pursuit of the singularity is in a, in a yeah. sort of a hope uh, or sort of a project which in which you know this realization of the transhumanist project will be. Re- uh, achieved because the AI will be able to know things, uh, sort of develop, uh, in such a way so as to bring about the changes that we want that we can't bring about for ourselves. It, it's a really a yeah. weird thing. <laughs> it, is, it is, it is, it is. And, but the capacity for, you know, I mean, the way in which it drains the human from having to think, I mean, there, there is your one, or of course, you know, the integration of the, the you know, computers into the minds, if you will, at some point to, to be linked to one big server. Um, but all of that is very similar. And, and, you know, when you do have figures that embrace like Musk, that embrace some of that transhumanism to some degree, um, to watch them get scared. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's a, quite, so, that's sober. Well, that, that's to me is the thing that I've wondered about here recently, because you're right. There were things that he was into, uh, that he seems to be yeah. pulling back from. Speaking of Elon Musk, and yeah. and almost is becoming kind of a, a canary in the in the mind, you know, you know, because he knows about stuff that we don't have access to. He he's got some insight that uh, uh, because of his technical background, but also because he's been involved in funding some of this stuff. Uh, so yeah. when th- when a guy like that, um, you know, we're not just talking about Tucker Carlson. Uh, we're talking about a guy who's been in the in the conference rooms and in the yeah. labs uh, that's talking like this. Yeah. 
Yeah, he when you, when you, when you start saying that and kind of you know the certain people saying pause it, and then the creeps that say no, no, this let's run with it. You know the the Bill Gates of the world. You know <laughs> they they uh, I mean again, it's eye opening. But I think this is this is something I think that is kind of a sick turn. And I think the point there was Glenn uh, with Zizek was was noting that this transhumanism has basically almost you know stepped into our willingness to become servants and slaves to the technology we produce, um, not being the kind of autonomous masters of it that the kind of enlightenment uh, ways of conceiving it um, would have been more geared towards. And so what is that saying about the kind of philosophy of the human in relationship to technology um, if it isn't about autonomy the way that that the previous generation would have wanted. Well, I, I think, too, that when you take a look at the transhumanist projects, they all sound really wonderful. You know, we're going to extend life. We're going to, you know, we're going to eliminate death. We're going to do all of these kinds of things. Um, the question that I have is, well, there are two questions. First of all, at what cost? Let's assume that you could grant physical immortality to people. That means no one has children. You can't afford children under those circumstances. So what's the price that you're willing to pay to get that? The other question is, who gets it? What we're really talking about is technologies that are incredibly expensive that only the elites will be able to afford. And so we create a dual-level society where we have the elites and we have the Swinish masses, to use Jefferson's phrase, um, yeah. and uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, you, you know what that does is it creates a permanent underclass. Yeah, and, and and you know, again, connected with that is you know something something sinister in this loss of the humane, if you will, or what started out as secular humanism, all about the glorification, if you will, of the human individual and their sovereignty. Um, has has lent itself to this kind of very system they thought they were liberating people from. <laughs> and again, this is, I think, at the heart of what a Christian would say, the incarnation and it, even the fact that the common humanity that grows out of really for the first time in such a rigorous way of that teaching. Um, and then the way in which integrated with Christ, you start to see the, the dispositions of, of certain relationships change that allows for the full dignity of, of someone wherever they fall on the human scale in life, um, eroded to, to really a hierarchy, like you say, of, of masters and servants um, without the bond of Christ to make that relation non-barbaric. And, and then, then there's a, another sort of uh, cre creepy feature to AI that we just witnessed here recently. Um, you just don't know uh, what you're interacting with anymore whether you're actually dealing with a, a human being or some right. algorithm. So I don't know. I think, I think Glenn saw the uh, response that AI uh, had to our episode on the return of the old gods. Did you, did you see that? Oh, no, I didn't see that one. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody posted it and it was, it, it was oh. a, uh, it, was, it had the head of an Indian guy but it was obviously animated. It wasn't an actual, it wasn't the actual person. I don't even know if it was a person, if it, even the image, the image was generated, <laughs> but it was responding to yeah. the show. And, yeah. So, um, 
and it was naming you, Glenn. It was naming me. It was it was arguing with us. Um, what and platform I, was this on? Uh, I think I saw it somewhere on Facebook. It was one of these things where I just don't know where I couldn't take you to it. But I thought I have it, to track that down. Yeah, I thought that would be that would be a fun. But, I, show. but as I was as I was <laughs> watching this, I think, do I respond? Is there is there a person here? No, there's not a person here. This is um, a chat. Yeah. GPT kind of thing. Uh, there's not not even a person yeah. to argue with, but you could you could yeah. you could assume that there is. In fact, there's, they did a fairly good job yeah. of of uh, of creating the impression that maybe it was a person because of there was still there were certain features to it that let you know that it was a bit uh, sort of uh, crude. Uh, wasn't wasn't as uh, convincing as maybe something will be in ten years. But that's my point. Uh, when, when you yeah. just no longer know, uh, so even like a, a, a zoom call, is it really the guy, uh, that I'm talking to, or did, is he on vacation yeah. right now? And he just has this avatar that's doing his work for him. And then you find that the AI will frequently give you distorted answers based on the algorithms that they use. The yeah. search so that you're going to get things yeah. from a particular political or ideological perspective, yeah. including making up facts. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I saw that. I did a I did a, a chat cheap GPT thing on me. Tell me about C.R. Wiley, and it was about fifty percent wrong. Uh, it gave me credit for books I didn't write, but it, it was one of the. It said I went to school at certain places I didn't go, but the thing that was <laughs> that was unnerving was that it, it had about fifty percent right. You know about about me. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. after you did that, I did it, and it, it uh, said that I actually taught it at at least one elite university, which <laughs> emphatically isn't true. <laughs> well, some it's trying to flatter you. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we we should probably wrap it up. We've gotten to that point where we should yeah. we should bring this to it uh, to an end. So, anything you want to say, Tom? As we do. No, I thought it was a, a very, you know, good discussion. It tied together some threads we've talked about before, took them with a little different emphasis. But I think over and over again, it's worth remembering that a lot of the a lot of the things that have gone wrong and we're seeing all over the place, besides the kind of spiritual roots in, in the demonic, right, and, and, and the like, um, are tied to and relatedly to distortions of Christian teaching run in non-Christian directions. And I think the, the barbaric future that probably will result, um, whether it's between an elite class using technology to control the rest, or whether it's uh, just kind of, you know, tribe against tribe, nation against nation, they can very they can function very badly because the Christian good ripped from the good becomes a very heinous um, thing to, to wrestle with. Because in a sense, taking something Christian but rip, ripping it from the Christian roots ties it to something or nothing, and both are dangerous. Well, anyway, thanks for listening uh, to the Theology Podcast. We're Glad that you got all the way to the end of an episode. Um, 
want you to know about a couple of things. One is uh, this episode is going to come out, I think, the week before I am speaking at the Bitcoin conference. In, thank God for Bitcoin in Miami. And that's going to be the mm-hmm. 16th and 17th. Um, there's a link in the show notes. Uh, but the more I've worked on what I'm going to talk about, the more I'm kind of jazzed about it. It's going to be a, a, a fun event. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm hoping to to meet some interesting people there. But if you are in the Miami area uh, and have an interest in the subject, uh, check out the link uh, in our show notes. It'll take you to the the uh, website that tells you about that. Then another thing is we've got of course uh, our Patreon page, and uh, we're glad that a number of people support us on a monthly basis. If you'd like to join them, that would be great. There are some things we'd love to do that we just don't have the resources to do that would enhance uh, the show. But if you uh, become a, uh, a patron, uh, you can help us to uh, take a show, take the show to another level uh, in terms of quality and content and so forth. So uh, we encourage you to consider that. Anyway, I guess that's it for now. Uh, bye-bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy another of our podcasts, The Good Life Podcast, featuring Matt Carpenter interviewing experts in their field about how their work contributes to the good life.